Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me uh, start. By the way, I'm going to be kicking off in John chapter 1, so if you want to turn there. And before we get started, if you weren't here last week, I want to remind, I want to I let you know, and if you were here last week, I want to remind you that we announced last week that Ross, our pastor, is going on a sabbatical starting on January the 1st, and he's going to be gone for three months. And I thought it fitting for me to be the first one to preach after that announcement because before moving here, I came from a church of about this size where our one and only pastor, his name is David, went on a sabbatical for uh, between three and four months. And so I have a particular excitement about this concept and about this idea. Not so much, although it is true, so that Ross can get well-needed rest and, and, and be restored, and that is critical, but for the rest of us as well. I can just tell you that in our church uh, back in Richmond, Virginia, when our pastor David went on a sabbatical, it was an incredibly rich time. And it wasn't a time so much that people stepped up. I don't actually like that language in the church. We're not a corporation. We are not a human organization. We are the people of God. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and his spirit comes to dwell in you, so you don't step up, God moves in. And when God moves in, God moves in power. And so I am excited to see once while Ross, I'm sorry, David, while Ross is gone, how God moves in power in and among his people. So can I get an amen to that? Yes, thank you, Jason. Uh, let's go ahead and, and pray as we uh, prepare to hear God's word. Great God of heaven, Lord, we pray that you would come that even in these next few minutes, that your spirit would be poured out, that you would move in power, and that we, your people, would be humbled, encouraged, that we would rejoice and worship in awe of the coming of our God and King. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So as I was thinking about Ross's sabbatical, can you imagine... How excited Ross must be to start three months off. I mean, I get excited when I have a long weekend and I don't plan to work over that long weekend, right? I, I just, I can't imagine the excitement of having three months off. And kids, kids who are in the room, anything coming up that you might be excited about? Christmas! And why are you excited about Christmas? Yes, because it's Christmas, of course, absolutely. Not the answer I would have given, buddy, when I was your age. I would have said gifts, presents, Santa, all of the, oh, and, and of course, yeah, what else? Family. Family, and come on, kids, what do you get whenever Christmas comes? Maybe you guys don't go to school. I went to school when I was a kid, and we got Christmas off when I was a kid for a couple of weeks. And those are the, remember when you were that age, adults, young adults, when you were that age, how excited you would get for Christmas? Do you remember the anticipation? Well, today, and I love it, this little guy already said it, like one of the things that we look forward to, and I, I was asking my daughter Maddie, who flew back to college this, early this morning, but I was asking her yesterday, like, what are the things you as a young adult look forward to for Christmas? And she said the obligatory gifts. But then she said family. 
And then she said, food. And I was like, wow, those are great things, right? Those are absolutely great things. And those are the things that, that I look forward to as well. But is that it? Is that it? Is that all we as followers of Jesus are to look forward to with Christmas? No, of course not. And to help us understand what we are to look forward to in Christmas, I want to turn our attention to the scriptures from the gospel according to John. John chapter 1. And we're going to look at two very short verses. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and then we're going to do the first part of verse 14. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by the way, and we can talk about this if you have questions afterward, but this is absolutely clear that when the, the gospel writer John uses the word, the word, who is he referring to? Jesus. He's referring to the Lord Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then bouncing down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. And that is what? And that is who we celebrate at Christmas. But did you know, and if you just think about it for a nanosecond, it'll be totally clear to you, that that is one of the most offensive, one of the most divisive statements in the history of mankind. I'm not talking about the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Is it Tom Brady or, or, or uh, Aaron Rodgers in terms of quarterbacks for a, what, a 100-year, 60-year, 70-year period, whatever it is? No, I'm talking about all of humanity. That to say that Jesus is God is one of the most offensive and divisive statements that one can make. People refuse to believe that Jesus is God. And when he said it of himself... It created an intense amount of division. To prepare for this sermon, all I really did was pray and read the gospel according to John. Gosh, can I encourage you in this season to pray and read and reread the gospel according to John? Because when you read the gospel according to John, you will see that when Jesus made himself equal with God, people were so outraged but they wanted to kill him. We're going to turn to three passages right now in the gospel according to John. John chapter 5, and where we're going to start is Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath. And picking up in John chapter 5, verse 16, this is what the Bible says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, meaning healing, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. This was why, beginning at verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, by the way, in our culture today, you will hear people regularly say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I just urge you, read the scriptures for yourself. And you can see how false that actually is. And when Jesus calls himself the son of God, which he will do over and over again, his audience, the Jewish religious leaders of that time, understood exactly what he was saying, that he was making himself equal with God, and therefore they wanted to kill him. And now turn to John chapter 10. 
beginning at verse 24. And I'll give you the setup again. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. It is one of my favorite chapters of all of the Bible. And then, God, and then Jesus moves into to John chapter 10, and he calls himself the good shepherd. And for those of you who know the scriptures, you will know that that is a reference to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. From Ezekiel chapter 34, when God said, I, I myself will shepherd my people Israel. God was saying that he had given shepherds, human beings, and they weren't doing the job. In fact, they were doing a horrible job. They were satisfying themselves and they were not serving God or his people. And God said, I, I myself will be the good shepherd. So when Jesus in John chapter 10 says he is the good shepherd, do you know what he's doing? He's reaching back into the Old Testament and he is saying, That's, that proclamation, that prophecy was of me. And the people understood that. But they ask him a question. They're gathered at a feast of dedication in Jerusalem. And beginning at John chapter uh, 10, verse 24, it says this. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They, they were waiting for him. The people of God were waiting for this coming Messiah, this Christ, this Savior. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He continues this reference back to he is the good shepherd and he has sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. By the way, when somebody tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, you go around telling that people that you can give them eternal life and see how that works, right? Jesus says, uh, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, there he goes. They, every time he says that, they get really upset. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and get ready for this, what Jesus says now. I and the father are one. Amen. Well, this did not get people cheering. Instead, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Again, his audience understood exactly what he was saying. And finally, when you get to John chapter 19, you'll recall that the Jews arrested Jesus. The, the Jewish religious leaders arrested Jesus. And they ushered him into the praetorium, into the governor's headquarters. The governor was a man named Pilate. And Pilate puts him on trial, examines him, and says over and over again that I find no guilt in this man. And yet you'll recall that Pilate had him flogged or scourged. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. Do you remember this story? And they put a robe around him and they mocked him saying, Hail the king. Picking up in, in uh, verse 5 of, of John 19, Pilate then brings him out, brings now this, this beaten, bruised, and bloodied man, Jesus. And he says, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, 
And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. All right, do you got it? For him to say that he is the son of God is for him to say that he is God. And for him to say that he is God is an offense they believed was punishable by death, that it was blasphemous. And by the way, that was 2,000 years ago. And in some parts of the world, it is still true that if you say that Jesus is God, it's a death sentence. Since it's a kids service, I'll try to keep this as high level as I can, but some of you will remember February 2015, Christian men, about 20 or so of them, most of them Coptic Christians from Egypt, marched onto a beach in Libya. Do you remember this? With men dressed in black? And they were beheaded. Why? Because they said, Jesus is Lord. I learned yesterday as I was doing a little bit of research that one of the men with him was not a Coptic Christian, but he was so impressed that as he's watching these other men die, he said, their God is my God. And he received the same punishment of them as them. And this isn't just true uh, in the Middle East. I was reading yesterday that this happened also to some Ethiopian Christians, and I'm sure it has happened in many other places to many other people who say that Jesus is Lord. To say that Jesus is God is divisive and is offensive, but if you are a follower of Jesus, it is your hope. Do you get that? If you are a follower of Jesus, it is your hope that he is God. And so I've got to ask this, as we approach Christmas, wouldn't you think that we as professed professed Christians would be most in awe that God became flesh? Wouldn't you think that? That we would be the most in awe? Let me ask, are we? Are we? Are you? Are you in awe that God became flesh? See, I'm not sure we are. I'm not sure I am. And I just started to to ask myself, like, how is it, especially at Christmas time, that I am not focused on the coming king? And Ross already talked about this busyness that is that that, that just afflicts us, it seems. It's like a a, a chokehold around our necks. But ask yourself this question, and I want you to I want you to actually ask yourself this question and think about it. If you were God, and you look down from heaven at Christmas time, what would you see about the people who profess to follow you and your son? If you were God, what would you see? Would you see worshipers who are in awe? I asked my daughter Maddie, I quote her a lot, by the way, in this sermon. You can thank her when she comes home for Christmas break. Um, uh, I, said, I said, honey, what do you think God sees? And here's what she said. Well, he sees trees. Wow. Impressed, right? He sees Santa. He sees presents. And I said to her, I said, what about credit card debt? Doesn't he see a lot of credit card debt? And, and Maddie said, well, I kind of consider that with Santa and presents. And, and she referred to those as the new idols, which I thought was particularly profound especially as we look to have our hopes fulfilled in gifts. Then she said the next one, this one hit particularly close to home given the last couple of days, gluttony. Come on, gluttony. 
obviously your wives don't cook as well as, as my wife does. My, uh, then my daughter said this. This is profound. Grew up in a Christian home, goes to a Christian college, and this is what she says. Dad, no one thinks of Jesus anymore when it comes to Christmas. What do they think of? Gifts. Family. Food. How did the miracle of God becoming flesh lose its place of priority in the church? I'm not talking about out in the world. I'm not talking about people who don't profess to follow Jesus. I'm asking about in here, in you, how did the miracle of God becoming flesh lose its place of priority in our lives? And so again, I went to my fount of wisdom, my 20-year-old daughter, and I asked her, I said, what do you think, honey? And it was amazing because we talked about three things, and each of them begin with good intent. But it's what we do with them. The first thing she said, she goes, Dad, I, I realize this is good, but man, I remember growing up, we'd go to those family Christmas services. You know, the kids were all dressed up as barn animals and everything, and, and there'd be a baby Jesus in the, major, in the manger. And she said, I got to tell you, it was adorable, but it diminished the significance of the coming God. And she said something I thought was really funny. She said, she said, what you see are either cute kids waving to parents. You know what I'm talking about. Come on, we can enjoy it, right? We watch it. Cute kids waving to parents or not so cute kids picking their noses up on stage. That's what my daughter said. Again, you can thank her over Christmas time. And so do you see that? That in the midst to accommodate, in the midst to entertain, frankly, in the midst from good intent to tell the story of the gospel, to tell the story of Christmas, to tell the story that God became flesh, we ended up getting distracted and diminished the significance. I said, what else, honey? What what other examples do you have? And she said, how about 24-7 Christmas music? By the way, if 2018 is anything like 2017, according to Google, that we live in the city that has more 24-7 Christmas radio stations than any other city in the country, which means probably the world, right? right? And they start as early now as November the 1st, Sirius XM, when all, all, all Christmas all the time, beginning November the 1st. Good intent. Get us ready for the season. It's super great. And don't get me wrong, there are some Christmas songs that make me weep. Oh, holy night, when Josh Groban sings it, can I get a witness? Like, when I hear that dude sing of the coming God, I cry. Until about the fifth time I hear it. That we, there's so much repetition that the, the songs themselves lose meaning. Am I right? Am I the only one? Silent night? Yeah, great, Silent Night, love that one. Oh, come all ye faithful, I love that one. We're big Bing Crosby fans in our house. What child is this? And we hear the songs, but they have lost their meaning in our minds, in our hearts, and in our spirits. And it doesn't help, right, when the very next song is Elvis. Right? (laughs) Oh, Santa, hear my plea. Come on. Santa, bring my baby back to me. Coming on the heels of what child is this? Or, oh, have a blue, right? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love Elvis. I love Elvis non-Christmas songs. I love Elvis Christmas songs. I used to turn on Elvis, the Elvis Christmas CD, every morning on Christmas morning when I was a little bit younger. 
But do you see how it dilutes, how it erodes the power of the coming king? In fact, for some of us, maybe for all of us, what does it become? Especially on week seven of 24-7 Christmas. It's just background noise. Am I right? It's just background noise. Okay, what other, what other things have, have caused us to lose the miracle of the power of God becoming flesh? Shopping. Again, good intent. Let's give gifts, right? Gifting is good. It is better to give than to receive. Gifting is good. But where are we as a culture? Let me ask it this way. Where are you in the midst of this culture? Can any of us say that we're not consumerists or materialists in this culture? That we are consuming all day, every day. Do, do you remember, okay, I'm almost 50. When, if you're my age, how many times a year did you get gifts? Christmas and birthday, two times a year. It's 2018. When do kids get gifts today? Every day. Every day. Whenever. Do you remember those old Bass and Rankin Christmas? Another thing I do love about Christmas, by the way, the old Bass and Rankin TV shows. Remember Heat Miser, Snow Miser? You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. Do you remember all of those things, how great they are? Watch them this year. And when you watch them, when they show a Christmas tree after Santa has been there, look how many gifts there are. Or look how few gifts there are. And compare that to our consumerist culture today. When, when my girls were real little, we had one year so much stuff, you couldn't get within about eight and a half feet of the Christmas tree. The girls were like, oh, another one? We, we have now dubbed that the year the Christmas tree threw up. And it was a hard, it was a painful, and let me tell you, it was a very expensive lesson for us to learn. But all of this gifting has caused gifts and the fact of gifting, the act of gifting to lose its special quality and to lose its special nature. And so we make up for it with volume. Since we're getting a ton of stuff all year, then we need to get two tons of stuff at Christmas time, don't we? Oh, and by the way, if we can't make up for it in volume... Let's make up for it in size. Let's get a car. Let's get two cars. If, you've see, if you see these commercials, Elijah, you know which one I'm talking about. We just saw it yesterday. Let's get a car. Again, put yourself, if you're my age, did it ever occur to anybody to buy anyone else a car for Christmas? No, but you've bought everything you need. You've bought everything you don't need. For Christmas, why not go extra? and get a Lexus, or a Mercedes, or a GMC, or an Audi, or go on and on and on, all with a bow on them. We have imbibed the culture. So why? Why? Why have we allowed the miracle of God becoming flesh to lose its significance? Maybe we're just distracted, and I can say guilty as charged. Maybe we're just distracted. Or how about this? Maybe we just don't believe it. Or maybe we don't believe it enough for it to make any difference in our lives. All right, it's at this point that I want to sort of shift gears. 
And what I want to talk about is what I do for myself so that I am no longer distracted. What I do for myself to regain the awe that God has come in the flesh. And my hope is, my hope is that as we read some of these prophetic words of the Bible, that you will have a growing appreciation, a deepening love, a deepening understanding, and just a a joy about the fact that God became flesh and what it says about him and ultimately what it does for you. I'm going to take you guys on a quick tour of the Old Testament. A very, now that I look at my watch, a very quick tour. And we're going to start. Now, you don't have to follow along with me. In fact, what I'd love for you to do is write these down because I want you to go home and study them. And I want you to read them. And I want you to reread them and see them over and over again and see how awesome God is. And we're going to start at 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is about a thousand years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the king of Israel at that time is a man named David. Remember David wrote a bunch of the Psalms. He's a man after God's own heart. He took out Goliath. He, 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 he creates this capital, the capital Jerusalem. He builds a home for himself, and then he looks at it and goes, wow, I dwell in a house, but God dwells in a tent. All we worship in is a tent. And he gets his buddy Nathan the prophet, and he says to Nathan, Nathan, I'm going to build a house for God. And listen to what Nathan says to him, what the Lord says to him through Nathan. This is chapter 7, and it's beginning midway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord, speaking to David, the Lord will make you a house. And this is not a reference to a building. This is a, re- a, a, a reference to the, the, the genealogy, the, those who will come after David in the line of David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers meaning he's dead. I will raise up your offspring after you, a human, your offspring, who shall come from your body, in case you missed the first part, that it's a human coming from David, it's a human coming from David's body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you get it? That there will be one who will come in the line of David and he will be a human being. But his kingdom will be what? Eternal. Only God is eternal. Okay, you're saying, Dan, that's, that's a little ambiguous, isn't it? A little vague. You can do better than that, can't you? I mean, come on, aren't there some old prophetic writings about the coming king? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah chapter 7 Isaiah chapter 7, it's now between 250, maybe 300 years after uh, Nathan the prophet had given that prophecy to David. And there's another prophet named Isaiah. And the king at this time is a king named Ahaz, and Ahaz is a wicked king. He offered his son through fire to worship a false god. Got it? Wicked king. But God, in his amazing grace, uses this prophet Isaiah to speak to him, to try to reach him, to break through to this king Ahaz. And beginning at chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. It's almost like God is pleading with this wicked king, come back. Ask me to do something. I will do it. I will prove who I am. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. 
And Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David. Ah, house, David, I will build you a house, David. O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. And we just sang about Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. And so a virgin will conceive. That virgin will bear a child. That's a human being. But his name will be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And you say, Dan, come on, that's just a name. You've got to be able to do better. The scriptures have to be better than that, right? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah chapter 9. Many of you who are fans of Handel's Messiah at this time of year will know these words very well. The same prophet Isaiah is giving a prophecy of this, come, this one who is to come, this one who is born of a virgin, this one who is Emmanuel, God with us. And he says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, God has given us his word hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus so that when Jesus came... We would know it. And we would know more than just his, the fact of his arrival. We would know that he is a man, but that we would know that he is God also and that his kingdom would be eternal. In fact, God wanted to make it so clear. He told us when, or excuse me, he told us where Jesus would be born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, who lived and prophesied around the same time as Isaiah, so some 700 or 750 years before Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, is from ancient days. Do you know why we sing? And I won't sing it like Elvis. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Because that's where Jesus was born. Because that's where God foretold some 700 plus years before Jesus was born, that that's where he would be born. And I read that last piece of ancient days in, in Micah chapter 5, and I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That reminds me of another prophecy, this time from Daniel. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Do you remember Daniel? Who lived during the time of the exile to Babylon. So now we're talking some 550 years before Jesus. And Daniel says this in chapter 7, verse 13 of, of Daniel. Please write these down and look at them. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Did you ever wonder, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man sometimes? Because just like when he called himself the Good Shepherd to get us to go back to Ezekiel and recall, oh my gosh, he's saying he's God. He's doing the same thing 
when he calls himself the Son of Man. He is saying, go, search the scriptures and see that I am he, that I am the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, meaning to this one who was like a Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see the link from 2 Samuel to Isaiah to Micah to Daniel? All of these things, all of these times where God prophesies hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus that he would come. And that he wouldn't come just as a man, but that he would be God in flesh. Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies, and that's why he calls himself, as I mentioned, the Son of Man. That's why he calls himself the Son of God, and those people understood, just like we read. They knew exactly what he was saying, that he is God when he called himself the Son of God. That's why he calls himself the Light of the World, which is what we read earlier this morning. That's why he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why he says he is the one sent from heaven. He says, as I read earlier, he is the one who gives eternal life. He says he is the prophesied Messiah. He says he is the one of whom the scriptures speak. And he says the dead will hear his voice and live. That's John chapter 5, verse 25. And this is why Jesus says over and over again, believe in me. He doesn't say believe me. He does a couple of times. But predominantly, he says, you believe in me. I I don't know about you, but I get so excited and I get so encouraged to know that the Bible is true. That God made all of these promises, made all of these prophecies, and then because he can, he fulfilled them. I mean, I get such encouragement out of that. I'm encouraged by God's sovereignty. I'm encouraged by his power, his control. I'm encouraged by his presence. Not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. That he is God with us. That he is present with us. And I hope that you see that. And I hope that that can create this glimmer, this, this hope of awe of who this coming king is, who this one is who we celebrate at Christmas. And, and, and then I hope that it prompts a really good question. Why? Why? Why would God do this? Why would God step down from heaven? I don't like to step out of bed. And God himself would step down from heaven and be a baby in this land under an occupying force born to a teenage girl who probably was illiterate, impregnated out of wedlock, which was taboo at that time, and could have had her, gotten her stoned. Why would he do it? This is the gospel. You see, Christmas points to Easter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God came 
as a man because, as the Bible explains, there must be a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And men bleed. And Jesus bled for us. And so you go back to that picture. Not only the occupying, you know, being born, born to a teenage girl at a wedlock, being born poor, but go back to the time when he's before Pilate, flogged, crown of thorns, spit upon, and mocked. He did this out of love. Because as Ephesians 2 says, he is rich in mercy. And he loved us with a great love. You see, that is Christmas. That is the meaning of Christmas. That is the purpose of Christmas. And we should be in awe that God came as a man that we might live with him in freedom, as we sang earlier, forever. So let me ask, as we approach this season of Advent, do you believe that? Do you believe it? If you don't, I want you to be super honest with yourself. Because there are too many church people who don't believe. I was a church person who did not believe. Even though I showed up and I read the scriptures and I even taught Sunday school, I, was, I did not believe. And so I'm encouraging you, would you please, during this Christmas season, as we approach Christmas, would you earnestly seek God? Would you open up the scriptures? Would you pour through the gospel of John and challenge him? Challenge the scriptures humbly and allow God to overwhelm you with who Jesus is. If you do believe it, if you do believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us and that God was Jesus, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And maybe you're just better than me and you don't need to do this, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. And I hope you will join me in it. Repent. Would you repent with me? And stop taking God for granted Stop taking Christmas for granted. Stop focusing on the gifts and focus on the gift that God became flesh. And then I hope that you will with all your heart turn to him and be in awe of what he has done for you, what he has done for me, and that we would truly worship him this Christmas time. Not distracted by the shopping, not distracted by the 24-7 music, not distracted by the family service where baby Jesus throws up in the manger, all right? But in awe of a great God who came as a man, died as a man, that we might live forever in heaven with him. To Jesus be all glory. Would you pray with me, please? God, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for taking you so lightly. Forgive us for not being mind-blown by the fact of what you have done for us. Forgive us, Lord, that we have allowed the familiarity of the season and the rhythms of the calendar to distract us from focusing on you and who you are and what you have done. And God, we pray that you would overwhelm us with Jesus, that your spirit would pour out upon us, and that we would know you, truly know you in a way that surpasses knowledge. Lord God, fill us with all of your fullness, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.